time do you want me to tell you about? I was um, like up and down. I get convicted by my own sermons. And um, <laughs> I don't know whether that's good or bad, but um, I, I got under conviction and started praying and then forgot all about you guys. I apologize. I was too much pressing in for myself. I, I love jokes, you know that. And I think one of the things about being in leadership is you have to laugh your way through and you have to learn to laugh at yourself. And sometimes that's a real challenge, but I love this. Great truths that little children have learned. Number one, no matter how hard you try, you cannot baptize a cat. <laughs> Number two, when your mom is mad at dad, do not let her brush your hair. <laughs> Number three, if your sister hits you, don't hit back. The second person always gets caught. Number four, never ask your three-year-old brother to hold a tomato. Number five, you can't trust dogs with your food. Number six, don't sneeze when someone is cutting your hair. Number seven, never hold a dustbuster and a cat at the same time. Number eight, you cannot hide a piece of broccoli in a glass of milk. Number, number nine, don't wear polka dot underwear under white shorts. <clears throat> Number 10, the best place to be when your mom is mad at you is in your grandpa's lap. Great truths that adults learn. Number one, raising teenagers is like nailing jello to a tree. Number two, wrinkles really don't hurt. Number three, families are like fudge, mostly sweet, but a few nuts thrown in. Number four, today's mighty oak is yesterday's nut that held its ground. Number five, laughing is good exercise, it's like jogging on the inside. Number six, middle age is when you choose your cereal for fiber, not for the toy. Great truths you learn about growing old. Number one, growing up is mandatory. Growing old is optional. Number two, forget the health food. I need all the preservatives I can get. Number three, when you fall down, you ask yourself, what else can I do while I'm down here? Number four, you're getting old when you get the same sensation from a rocking chair you used to get from a roller coaster. Number five, it's frustrating when you know all the answers, but no one's asking you the questions. Number six, time is a great healer, but a lousy beautician. Number seven, wisdom comes with age, but sometimes age comes all by itself. Four stages of life. Number one, you believe in Santa Claus. Number two, you do not believe in Santa Claus. Number three, you are Santa Claus. Number four, you look like Santa Claus. <laughs> Success. At age four, it's I didn't wet my pants. At age 12, I have friends. At age 16, I have my driver's license. At age 34, I have money. At age 50, I have money. At age 70, I have a driver's license. At age 75, I have friends. At age 80, I didn't wet my pants. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> you have to be over 50 to understand all of that last one. Uh, glory to God. This morning, we are looking at leaders, and what an incredible privilege, thank you, what an incredible privilege it is to serve God and to serve God's people. But on the same hand, when it is a wonderful privilege, sometimes it becomes some of the most frustrating moments in our lives because we look at massive problems that are like yarn that is so winded and twisted around and knotted that we wonder how we could even have a word for them that would untwine that thing and cause their lives to come into what is called sense. 
We are looking at the word that June used this morning to you and I, transition. But transition is not a biblical term. It is a medical term. You cannot find the word transition in the Bible, and yet we use it uh, so many times in biblical concept. But it is a medical term, and transition is when a woman has come to full uh, face to about to give birth, and there is a transitioning where there is a thinning out of the uterus wall, and the head is locked into the birth canal, and they are about to give birth, and it is called the transition. The pain now is going to bring more pain as this thing is given birth to. So when we look at transition, we are looking in medical terms at the body of Christ as that something is becoming transparent. Sin no longer has a place to hide. Can I talk to you this morning? Because it is becoming very transitional in in the body of Christ right now that leaders who thought they were powerful and leaders who had great success to their ministry are no more less than leaders like you and I who may have smaller spheres of influence, but God is bringing transition to thin out the uterus wall where we can see what literally is going on. And in the midst of it, God must do this so that he can give birth to what is necessary for him to give birth. So when we look, uh, I had the privilege years ago of going to Jim Baker before everything broke loose. God gave me a word. Other people went to him. I went to Jimmy Swaggart. Other people went to him. And God has a way of sending a word into people's lives. Because again, I want to use the terminology that God would rather settle out of court than settle in court. And so God tried to settle with these men, and when he could not settle with them, it was settled out of the court because then it becomes a great reproach to the name of God. It becomes frustrating to some people who are not mature enough, and the only image they have of God is inside the leader. Can I, can I just yes. talk to you this morning? So when those leaders fall, our confidence falls with them, and, and our assurance that God is in control of this thing And so God didn't uh, want to settle in court, but any time we will not do business with God, God is not afraid to cause the transition to expose us, because when we won't let God deal with us, what happens is our negative influence begins to influence others. God will let us act up, but when we start making other people act up, God will come after us. Can I just talk to you this morning? So in the midst of it, we are in the word transition, which means that thinning out and that changing. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn with me to Matthew, and I want you to turn to the 14th chapter with me. And I want to talk about disciples, or we would call them in the 20th century, leaders who have been called and separated by God. And your agenda is threefold, to follow God, to be disciplined and taught by God, and to do God's will. So that's what every leader, no matter what sphere of influence we have, those things should be in our life. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard about John, he had just been beheaded, he withheld from them, he withdrew from them in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them and he healed their sick. 
can I tell you that, that the healing that God wants to do in the church is stifled right now, not because God is not concerned or that he doesn't have power or there aren't gifts of healing, but we are becoming desensitized and we are losing the compassion of Jesus because it is the compassion of Jesus that when he sees it, he heals it. And so he was moved by compassion for them, and he healed their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and the hour is already late, so send the crowd away so they may go into the village and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we only have five loaves and two fishes. And he said, bring them here to me and ordered the people to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and two fishes and he looked up towards heaven and he blessed the food and broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left up of the broken pieces and the 12 full baskets. And there were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. Immediately after this miracle, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowd away. And he sent the crowd away, and he went up into the mountain by himself to pray. And it was evening, and he was there along. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the winds were contrary. And it was about the fourth watch of the night when he came to them walking on the water. And when the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified, and they said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come and to you at the wa- on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the winds, he became frightened and began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when he got into the boat, the wind stopped, and, the, and those that were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. I, I asked the Lord to bless his word in our presence this morning. In the midst of it, every leader has to know, number one, they are called of God. The importance of that is there will always be someone who does not believe it. And there is always someone that says, you shouldn't be a woman pastor and a woman apostle or a woman evangelist or a woman uh, teacher or pastor. So our confidence and our assurance is not in the applause of people or even in their vote for us, but that we know that we know we are called of God. So you have to know that you are called of God. So we are looking at these 12 disciples, and Jesus has now pulled them into a classroom experience because you must understand that the three and a half years that Jesus was walking with his disciples, it was persuading them to understand that God was in their midst. I I think one of the hardest challenge for me as a leader is to try to convince 
even the people I go to church with, that God is really in our midst. And that is a challenge for every one of us. You, you have to believe God is there before you can believe that God wants to do something. So in the midst of it, these disciples come, and Jesus is now going to set them up for a paradigm shift. And uh, uh, June spoke to us about how the shifting of things are going on right now. The paradigm shift is so incredible for you and I because I want to speak to us this morning prophetically. And when I say prophetically, I want us to hear the mind of God and the heart of God and the very pulse beat of God that makes us understand that our nation is headed for a storm and miracles do not anchor people in in the storm. Come on, I, I want us to understand this. So we as leaders must be sensitive to know how to shift gears because there are two shiftings of gears that we have just read. One, Jesus is always compassionate. He always heals. He is always a miracle-working God. And not only that, but this Jesus literally wants to feed those that are hungry. But the paradigm shift is he understands that these leaders that he is called by name do not understand how to be a storm rider. Can I talk to you that part of our frustration inside of the church is when folk get in a storm, we don't know how to teach them to ride it out. Come, come on. We want to rebuke it. We want to bind it. Come on. We want to cast it out. And yet Jesus is the one that put them in this incredible storm. See, you got to know if the storm is from the enemy or has Jesus put you in the boat to teach you, you're no good to me in the kingdom if you can't ride something out. Come on. And we are a generation that we are dealing with right now that does not want to ride out anything. They, they just don't want to do it. They just want instant results and instant uh, materialism and instant debt. Come on, because all of that. But in the midst of it, Jesus is teaching his disciples. So this morning, we can learn from this passage. I have found out, and June and I were reminiscing, uh, we're old enough to do that, and, and we'll be friends forever. I told June, we're friends forever. We know too much about each other. <laughs> And uh, we were reminiscing this morning, and one of the incredible things years ago when Women of the Word started, all of the leaders were at every session because we understood this. Number one, posture yourself because don't ever think you're smart enough. You don't need to be sitting at someone else's feet. Can I talk to you? Because every one of us need to know we need to be in the presence of God. And so another motivation was Iverna would have killed us if we hadn't showed up. Uh, uh, that had a great uh, a drawing in our yeah. spirit like we wanted to live. But we understood she was discipling us that every leader ought to be present to keep a teachable spirit. You'll hear it a different way than God gave it to you. And you may even hear something that God never told you about. So in the midst of it, it is important we as leaders keep a teachable spirit that we understand. You ain't got it all together. You're not that in a bag of chips 
and if you ever think you are, I've got people in the congregation that will crush your chips. And they take great joy in doing it. So in the midst of it, we are looking this morning to be taught of the Lord. So as we look at it, number one, as we read the beginning of this scripture, Jesus is moved by compassion. I am shocked at the desensitizing of the church. Come up, where we're losing our compassion. We, we can hear about someone's sorrow and we flippantly say, well, we're going to be praying for you. But there are no tears to identify with it. There's no pain when a parent is going through something with their children. And we need to feel that compassion and that pain that says, my God, that heart must be broken. I've got to fast. I've got to pray. In fact, fasting is almost a foreign word to leadership right now. And in the midst of it, there are some things that just cannot happen until you deny yourself. Come on. And empty yourself so God can get in there to literally clarify something. And in the midst of it, we are losing our compassion. Our children right now are on all kinds of computer games of guts and, and blood and, and gory stuff. And, and we don't realize that it's not a game. It is the method of Satan to desensitize them that life is just nothing. Can I just talk to you? We're, we're in movies, we're in front of TV where swear words can come and God's name can be called in vain. It doesn't embarrass us anymore. It doesn't make us feel bad anymore. We just sit there and, and think, well, I can chew what I want to chew and spit out the rest. We're getting desensitized from the compassion of God. Bill Clinton falls in the White House and has oral sex and stands up. And people in our nation said, we don't care what he does in his private life just so he can be a good president. Can I ask you how in the name of God can you be a good president when you can't keep covenant with your wife? Come on, church. We are being desensitized. And so one of the lessons that Jesus wanted to teach the disciples was, you have got to watch this compassion that wells up inside of me when I start feeling, hearing, and seeing hurting people. That there is something that rises up inside of me that I cannot contain and I must express, this is who my father is. And I have to touch it. I have to meet the need of it. And so in the midst of it, it is not so much the power of the miracle, listen to me, but it's the compassion of the heart of God that finally showed up. And we realized it wasn't just somebody being healed. It was God's compassion that looked down and saw that need and said, I didn't design you to carry that. That's why my son carried it. Yeah. So the compassion of God, we fight for it as leaders and, and we fight for it, particularly when we're in leadership in the local church where we hear it over and over again and nobody wants to change and nobody wants to do anything and they just want to talk about it and they just want prayer, but they don't want to discipline themselves to come in agreement with God. You can quickly lose your compassion. In the midst of it, Jesus' compassion is, is loose because, listen, when Jesus is present, he always shows up to help. Can I, can I just talk to you that if you're in leadership and carrying Jesus, you ought to know that Jesus is there to help. 
We are living in a mentality now of an anar, uh, 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 just a, a structure that is so contrary to the Word of God. We have a pyramid in the church. The archbishop is up here, and the elders are down here, and the people are on the bottom. Can, can I just talk to you that that needs to be reversed? We are here for the people. They ought to be on the top, and every leader ought to be hidden in Christ. Come on. So we, we need a paradigm shift that shifts this thing. That we are not in leadership for people to bow down to us. We are in leadership to show up with Jesus to meet their needs and to help them. So every leader has to be challenged by that and stirred by that in their heart. That this thing is about people, not recognition. Can I just say this to you? I'm going to anyway. The title that God gives you, whether it's apostle or prophet or elder or, or praise and worship leader or whatever title. Listen to me. A title is the lowest form of leadership. Come on, it's the lowest. In fact, if you have to tell me your title, I am very concerned. Yes. Now, if I ask you what you are, that's another thing. But if you have to tell me I'm a prophet or I'm a bishop or, or I, you know, I'm, I'm a, a teacher. That, listen, I, I, I just want to say this to you. Uh, the title ought to explain what you do, but it should not ever become your identity. Yes. Come on, your identity's in Christ. So in the midst of it, we are raising up a generation who is seeking after a title because they believe the title will give them some sense of identity when our identity has to be found in Jesus Christ. And if our identity is in our title, we will want people to serve us. We will lose our compassion of showing up at a service or a meeting to meet the needs of people. So Jesus is teaching them. He feels their pain. He feels their hurt. They're sick, the Bible says. And I want you to know there's a lot of sicknesses we're dealing with as leaders. Not only sick in the body. There's some people sick in their theology. There's some people sick in their mind. There's some people that are sick in their emotions. There are people who have been abused. There have been people who have been involved in incest. There are, there are people in our congregation that are in trapped in adultery. There are people that are trapped in homosexuality and lesbian spirits and abortions. And we are dealing with people that are sick that Jesus has come to heal them. And a healing sometimes will have to be followed up by a deliverance. Because when you're sick emotionally or mentally or physically, or you have gone through a pain in, in your life back there, or a generational curse, God has to deliver that thing and cut the root off. Because if that root is not cut off, that will always be your identity, and you will become a survivor and a victim rather than an overcomer. So God wants to anoint us as leaders to be sensitive when we feel something is sick, something is wrong. And it may be a deliverance God wants to do, and it may not just be a, a physical thing. It may be something that literally is entrapping them that God wants us to uproot. Now, I, wanna, I don't want to get off into any theological uh, tear because, you know, uh, women of the word is, is crossing over every denomination. But I know we think about demons. Can a Christian have a demon? And my answer is this. Yes, if you want one. Yeah. 
Come on, you can be influenced by demonic activity. Now, it may not affect your spirit. Come on. Because God is greater than that, but it can affect your mind. It can affect your emotions. Come on, it can affect your behavior. Come on, why wouldn't you want to recognize it as a devil? God don't act that way. So in the midst of it, we have to be sensitive as leaders in this hour to understand I have to feel the pain of when people are hurting. Because if I don't, I I will treat them regimental. I won't treat them with the compassion of God. He shows his disciples, number one, you can never feel what you don't see. When he saw them, he was moved by compassion. I found out that all of us are busy, and we are busy as leaders, and a lot of times we lose anointed eyes. Do we really see that person like God sees them? Do we really see their pain? Do we really see their bondage? Do we we really see that they are stifled? Do we really see that they're not in rebellion, but they're just frustrated and they're kicking up against authority? And listen, a lot of times when folk kick up against authority, it is not rebellion. It is a resistance because I don't want to submit to authority because every time I did, I was disappointed and I was abused. Come, come on, we have to see with the eyes of God. And so Jesus shows them that he sees and he feels. And now he is going to involve his disciples. Uh, the one thing that every leader needs to know is every morning I get up and say, God, I bring you what I have. So Jesus is going to teach them, I am not asking your involvement with what you don't have, but I want to get you involved if you will give me what you do have. So we as leaders sometimes forget how to rise up every morning and give God what we have. Come on, we we give him our life, we give him our gifts, we give him our finances, we give him our emotions, we give him him the day. Come on, every leader needs to know how to stand up in the presence of God every morning with praise and thanksgiving, but a submission to God. Here I am again, God, whatever you want to do in my life, however you want to use me, I give myself totally and wholly to you. So he is asking them, what do you have? And I believe that it is very obvious that it was a small portion that was much smaller than the need. God wants us to understand he will always make the need greater than our ability. Come on, because if it's not greater, then you might believe you did it. Come on, so he will always challenge us with something that is greater and then say, I just need your little... uh, Whatever you have, just give it to me. And then let me show you that little is much when it is in my hand. Now, I want to challenge leaders this morning that God cannot do what he wants to do in our life as long as we're holding on to it. Come on, it's when it gets in his hands, when I surrender it to him, when I'm willing to give it to him, when I'm saying, God, you know, my ministry is little. It doesn't have the big sphere of influence of others. But but nevertheless, it's what you measured out for me. And how many of you know in the sight of God, there's not little or big. There's only the will of God. Come on, so some folk can have big ministries and not be in the will of God. 
So we need to understand it's what he's measured out. And so in the midst of it, I've got to be faithful to what God measured out. Now, my heart was broken. I don't believe that I will ever get the picture out of my mind. The day that Jimmy Baker was brought into the courtroom and found guilty, and the TV showed this man with shackles on his feet and shackles on his hand and the chain wrapped around his waist. And he is now bound up and walking towards this padded van that would bring him to the jail, that would process him and incarcerate him and bring him into prison. And the pain that hit my heart How can a leader have such liberty and what we would call as Christians success? And then suddenly the success takes a paradigm shift where you can touch everyone's life, but you can't get still enough for God to touch your life. Now that's painful to me. That the thing we're preaching, the thing we're teaching, we know how to give it to someone, but we don't know as leaders how to get still so God can cause us to receive what we are giving. My heart broke over Ted Haggard. I personally knew Ted Haggard. A godly man. A man who loved God, a man who loved his wife, a man who loved his children. And yet we found that a Mr. Haggard with a a church of over 10,000 and influence in the body of Christ and heading up evangelical groups and, and declaring who God was, something broke down, church, in the midst of his life that he could believe for a delivering God for you but could not believe that God wanted to be compassionate to him. So when Jesus is looking at us this morning, as leaders, we must understand that, the, that, the, that, the, that you and I in the ministry must be first, the Bible says, partakers of the food. Come on, before we give it out. How are we going to say, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good if we don't have a time with God where we eat what we are willing to give out to other people to eat? Personally, I'm tired of seeing leaders fall morally. But I'm here to tell you, you might as well buckle your seatbelt because there are others that are on the horizon that we are going to gasp for air when they are exposed. And, and, and we go, I can't believe it because God wants us to understand it is when you walk with Jesus, talk with Jesus, he will teach you how to see right, how to feel right, how to have compassion, and how to weather a storm because there's some elements that are going to come against you But you need to know that those elements are ordained by God to teach you how to stay focused and not give in. See, I believe it's possible 
And I think if we were honest this morning, every one of us as leaders have succeeded and have failed. I need an amen. You lie, you fry. Come, come on. We don't like to talk about our failures. We're hoping we don't have to talk to God about them, less well anybody else. Jesus said, bring me what you have, five loaves, two fishes. And he brings them to them. And the important thing for you to understand is that there are certain things that must happen in the life of every leader every day of your life that you release your life into his hands. God, it's just as simple as that. God, my, my life. The five fishes, the two loaves, the, the bread of life, the maturity of life, the, the meat, the substance, everything you've put in me. I lay it into your hands this morning, God. And I ask you to bless it. But listen, when it got in his hands, he lifted it towards heaven. He blessed it, but he also broke it. Come on. See, I want you to know that part of what we're dealing with is a carnal church right now that wants to be blessed of God, but they do not want to be broken. Broken by God. Come on, brokenness is almost a misword in the church. This younger generation doesn't even know what brokenness in God means. It's the old mothers of the church that need. I'm telling you, we need some old mothers of the church to rise up again. Some of us white folk don't even know what old mothers mean. It's the black church that understood. It was mothers that cared enough about your kids that they weren't intimidated about being sued. They'd go back there and tell them, you better straighten up, boy. I'm taking you outside. You do that now, you get sued. Oh, mother of the church was the one when I was in a black church one day and I was seeking God and trying to find God. And I was sitting on the black back row and oh, mother of the church, they always sit on the front row. The old mother of the church came back, didn't ask me, do you want to come to the altar? Grabbed me by, the, by my blouse, drugged me up to the altar, put her knee in the back of my back and said, honey, pray through. I didn't even know what that meant, but I said, God, whatever it is, I'm in agreement. <laughs> Because there was a pressure. See, we we want God to show up in our sanctuary without pressure. Jesus comes and he blesses it. But listen, if we're really blessed of the Lord, we should not be afraid of being broken by the Lord. It's when we're broken that we become a substance. When we're just blessed, we're still contained in our wholeness, in ourself. But it's when he blesses it and breaks it in his presence that the broken and contrite spirit, God will not despise in leaders and believers and he will multiply it. And listen, when he broke it, he gave it to his disciples and the disciples gave it to the people. You cannot give to leaders what has not been lifted up towards heaven. And leaders ought to know how to give it to disciples. Why? Because when Jesus blesses and breaks, he wants everyone participating. It's frustrating when you're a leader and you can't get congregations to participate. 
You have a few people that will participate, and the others are looking there saying, I'm doing my religious duty. It is Sunday morning. Good people go to church. They can hardly wait to get through. He gave his disciples. The disciples gave the people. Uh, uh, The miracle and the blessing and the breaking was all with what was put in his hands. I challenge you and I as leaders this morning to put our life every day in the hands of this incredible God. Because listen, church, when you put it in his hands, he said to the disciples, what do you have? He didn't come after it. The disciples had to give it to him. When you give him your life, you can rest assured of this. He will lift it up towards heaven, and he will bless you. And then while you're all full of blessing, I love you, God. Come on, he'll break it. But the brokenness brings a contriteness in your heart, and you realize how wonderful this God is. Now, the disciples had to be excited. I have had the privilege of being in a revival in 19, uh, 1980. It started and it went through to about 87. The miraculous happened. We had a church of 300 on Sunday morning, and in less than one year we went to 5,000. We had miracles, people raised from the dead. I've literally seen people raised from the dead. I've literally seen blind eyes open. I've literally seen lame men leap and jump for joy. I have, I have literally seen one Sunday morning, I just almost passed out along with the, all our congregation, an obese woman who weighed over 500 pounds in a wheelchair from a thyroid condition that the doctors could not get balanced out, and it was getting worse and worse, came up to the front, wheeled her wheelchair up to the front and stood there just praising God and worshiping. And suddenly the spirit of the Lord came down and she began to shrink in front of our eyes. And they literally had to wrap her dress around her about five or six times. The women of the church jumped up and began to just wrap her clothes around her. And God shrinked her up to a size 12. And I want you to know it was the miraculous. See, I believe there's a place in God where you don't have to wait for it to happen. It's a now happening. I I really do. And I never will forget that. I was just hyperventilating. I thought, I need a paper bag. (laughs) I was hyperventilating because my eyes saw it. So when you see the miraculous, it excites you. Come on, it really does excite you. My own daughter that was dying in children's hospital uh, was healed of cystic fibrosis. And God gave her two brand new lungs. And that's exciting. We saw marriages put back together that were on the brink of divorce. They just were so out of disorder. We saw God touch marriages and put it into order and breathe fresh and new love towards a husband and a wife and their children. That's exciting. And listen, if you don't get excited about that, then you need to understand you have lost your compassion. So it was exciting. I I believe the disciples were excited and ecstatic over the fact, boy, we are following the right guy. I mean, nobody has broke bread and fishes and fed 5,000 plus women and children and then had 12 baskets left over. We are going to stick with this guy. It's so 
fickle. Can, can I just talk to you a minute? It is so fickle in our heart when our commitment to Jesus is what he can do. But they, they were excited. They believed that they were going to stay committed. And listen, in the midst of it, Jesus puts them in this boat. And he says to them, guys, get in this boat. Go to the other side, and I'm going to meet you there. And in verse 23, it said, Jesus got along by himself to pray. I want to challenge us as leaders. If God dropped a plumb line right now, a plumb line is that thing that was a, really a carpenter's tool. It was a thing used when you were building. It was a leather strip that would be dropped down in the midst of a building or a wall or a cornerstone. It had heavy weights on it. And the weights would start swinging back and forth. And if it was not accurate in its balance the weight would get there and it would just hit like this. Couldn't settle down. Carpenters don't use it anymore. You know why? Number one, it's too costly. And number two, it consumes too much time. So if God came this morning as leaders and dropped his plumb line down inside of us concerning prayer, not prayer meetings concerning prayer, where we follow the example of Jesus, we get along by ourselves. And the plumb line was dropped. Would it do like this inside of us because it couldn't balance out? Or would it come to a swing where it just settled down? Jesus got along to pray. I'm here to tell you as a leader, I have a gift of revelation. I can open the Bible. God has given me this gift. I just open it up. I see things. I write them down. That is not hard for me. What is hard for me is to pray. What is hard for me is to shut off my cell phone, shut off the office phone, shut the door, tell people I'm not coming out, i got to talk to God. What is important for me to fight for is the necessity to know that a praying leader is destined for failure. If we don't pray, we're going to fail. So in the midst of it, Jesus, in verse 23, gets along to pray. I challenge every leader here this morning. It is important that you have times along with God to pray. And listen, it's not just leaders, it's believers, because you've got to understand, if you are a wife, you are a leader. If you have children, you are a leader. But we have so many excuses why we don't have time to pray. I'm going to pray in my car. I pray as I'm taking my kids to school. Thank God you do. Paul said you ought to pray all the time. But listen, there needs to be a quiet time where you bow down your knee and understand why Jesus was doing this. I want to talk to leaders this morning. Number one, he sends the disciples away. He dismisses the crowd. And the Bible said he got along. Where's your prayer time where you get along? Now, why would Jesus do that? Because, see, I'm, I'm one that gets my mind going. Because he's the son of God. He's Emmanuel. He is all that heaven is. 
Not going to be. He is. So why would he have to get along to pray? But see, what we forget is he was man wrapped up in God. So he was trying to dis- disciple his disciples and teaching them as future leaders. <laughs> you are man and you're wrapped up in God. But the man part of you needs to get along to pray so the God part in you can always reign. Come on, we're we're just dirt. That's all we are. But the value of this dirt is there's something hidden in it. That's why God convicts the church. He knows if I shovel out enough dirt, I'll find myself. Oh, I'm going to wait on you. So in the midst of it, number one, what does prayer do for leaders? Number one, it renews and strengthens your strength. Because if we are not renewed in prayer and our strength renewed, we will begin to do it in our own ability, our own talents. Come on, in our own strength. So it renewed his strength. And I just happen to believe if Jesus needed his strength renewed, I need mine renewed. Oh, can I have an amen? amen? I get a better amen out of my Assembly of God church back home. I've got to have a bigger one than that. Amen. Dear Lord, help us. Number two, he had to focus his heart back on God, not the event. Because, see, we get too impressed with the event. Oh, I felt real anointed this morning. Three people got slain in the spirit and two spoke in tongues and eight words of knowledge came and three prophecies. And and we get all impressed with what we did. Jesus was not impressed with what he did. He knew who did it through him. And he got in prayer to be strengthened. But he had to focus his heart again on God that anything good that ever happens is because of a heavenly father. Anything good. In the midst of it, he had to shift gears. You heard that from our sister June this morning. He had to shift gears. Why? Because now he is not going to focus on the multitude. He is going to focus on his disciples. See, we try to give the same ministry to everybody. I have a little mentoring group. I'm not interested in it getting big. I'm not interested in soliciting people. The people that are in my little mentoring group just believe that they want to learn from me and learn what God is doing and hear prophetically. And they, they just connect in the spirit. And they say, you know, do you do anything? And I say, well, yeah, I have this little group. Well, I'm coming. And the important thing is, when I look at them, I cannot look at them as a congregation. I can't even look them as leaders. I have to look at them as disciples based on covenant relationship, that our relationship has opened our heart to receive from one another and to receive from God. Not everyone is a covenant relationship. 
Thank God that our sisters and brothers. Come on, that's not a religious term. That's a family term. Come on, when I call you sister or I call you brother, that's a family term that reminds me we are a family. But listen, when I try to talk all that God has given me to sisters and brothers on the same level that I talk with people that are in covenant with me, I will create what what the Bible calls incest. Come on, because you can't lay and get intimate with brothers and sisters. Oh, y'all ain't hearing me. Come on, because it's spiritual incest. It's casting your pearls before swine. It's not that they're dirty or evil or wicked. It means that they don't understand that level. Jesus is shifting his gears. I could do one thing for, for the multitude. I had compassion. I could minister to them. I love them. They love me. They're part of my family. But now I'm shifting gears to go into something that's deeper and more intimate. I'm going to talk about the kingdom of God and I'm going to reveal myself in a greater measure you've got to identify relationships and I thank God for brothers and sisters come on how many of you know they can torment you but they can bring joy if you've ever had brothers and sisters you got that revelation and if you're an only child you'll have to have divine revelation and we are here as your sisters and brothers to give it to you. Glory to God. But Jesus is focused now. And he's going to shift gears from the multitude over to the disciples. Because you can say things to leaders that you cannot say to believers. So this morning, we are with leaders that we ought to be able to say things to leaders that we could not say to believers because they would not understand. Jesus is focusing his heart, gaining strength, because now he is going to focus in on what the Bible calls believers, no, disciples. Now listen to me. If ever I could pray a prayer of faith over you right now and over my own life, that prayer would be this. God, grant to us that are present in this room this morning discernment of spirits. Church, I'm here to tell you we desperately as leaders need to be able to discern because everything that looks godly is not godly. And you know what discernment? I have my own definition for it. Discernment is what does God have to say about the matter? Come on, not what I perceive, not what it looks like, not what it sounds like, but what does God have to say about the matter? We as leaders need to be praying for discernment. Discernment is important. Because discernment is from the Spirit of God. And listen, you cannot let your attitude in a situation or your attitude towards a person be called discernment. Come on, because some people can raise up a nasty attitude in mind. Come on, and I, I think I'm discerning something when really I'm just irritated at it. 
Come on, your discernment cannot be from your attitude. Discernment is from the Spirit of God. And it comes when we are in prayer. And God gives us discernment in prayer. And it's coupled with wisdom. And in the midst of it, remember, it's the presence of Jesus that he is he is evaluating and he's looking at the disciples because he realizes leaders must know my presence that will conquer fear. Now, the Bible describes this. I don't even know how to put it in the Greek. But the Bible says this, that the, the, the boat was being tossed and turned and battered by a contrary wind. And if I could break that down in English language, it would literally mean this. They were straining so hard but going nowhere because they were fighting just to stay where they were in fear of their life because this thing had an agenda behind it. And the agenda was this, break up the boat and cause separation to the disciples and bring such a testing that the God that put them in the boat will be laughed at and mocked because a storm defeated them. Now stay with me. I don't know what my time is, but stay, stay, help me. Stay with me this morning, leaders. Doing what Jesus told them to do, and they entered a storm. Can I free you and I this morning that you can be in the will of God and all opposition be coming against you? These disciples were not out of the will of God. Jesus had put them in the boat. And yet this great opposition was coming against them. And it was battering so hard. And they were straining so hard. It looked like total defeat. And yet they're in the will of God. See, I, I want to free us this morning that every storm is not from hell. Come on, I know I don't sound charismatic. I don't sound positive confession. But read your Bible. Jesus put them in the boat. Why, church? Come on, we're leaders here this morning. Why? Because storms will teach us something that miracle services can never reveal to us. Now, the focus right now on the church, and please hear my heart, because I'm prophetic, and, and so I have to watch myself that I stay balanced. How many of you know, no matter what ministry you're called to, balance is the word. Come on, the plumb line in the balance. And I have to watch myself, but I want to say to you that we are raising up a church that believe the evidence of who God is is Him demonstrating miracle signs and wonders. Yeah. And Jesus has a lot to say about that. He said it's a perverted generation that seeks after signs and wonders. Why? Come on. Why would he call it a perverted generation? Or one translation says an adulterous generation. 
Because we are wanting to bring people into a church service, get them on a high, give miracles and signs and wonders, carry on an external affair, get them to, to leave their uh, uh, spiritual seeming on the, on, the, on the bed, defile the marriage bed, walk out, have a high, met, a, met something inside of them with no commitment. Because, see, the, the, the body of Christ will put a demand on you that sometimes that isn't godly. Like, I don't want to talk about commitment. I don't want to talk about paying a price. I just want to spill my seed, have a climax. Can I talk mature to leaders this morning? I just want some kind of spiritual climax here where I can walk out the door and I really felt something and it was exciting like an affair on the side. But I want commitment. I don't want that kind of commitment. And Jesus is coming after them because he wanted them to know that you can be in my will, but I will put storms periodically in your life to teach you that life will bring storms, ministry will bring storms, but God can make you a storm rider. Now, I I'm here to tell you, I like the first part of the scripture we read. Come on, where your belly's filled. Come on, the miracles are happening. Jesus is Lord. Glory to God. We had fish sandwiches like nobody ever served. I like that. I don't like this storm business. But Jesus put them in the boat. Now, here's what I want to say to you. It is at the end of that storm that they have a revelation. He is certainly the Son of God. They did not have a revelation of who he was with miracles. So can I talk to you just a moment? Hell don't care how many miracle services we have just so we don't have a revelation. Because listen, most people don't leave a healing service with a revelation of who he is. They just leave proclaiming what he did. And he wants to do that. Come on, every leader ought to make, come, come on, stay with me. Some of you, I'm losing you. Stay with me. Every leader ought to have compassion. Every leader ought to meet the need. Every leader ought to heal the sick. Every leader ought to touch people's lives. Every leader ought to feel, feed the multitude. Every leader ought to know how to do the miraculous. Come on and put it in his hand and see the manifestation of the miraculous. But there are periodic times in leaders' lives when God God is not interested in a miracle service. He's interested in working a miracle in your life. Yes. Now, stay with me just a minute. <laughs> Jesus comes walking on the water. I'm going to blow your mind this morning. But you need to go back and read the text. And I repent of every wrong preaching and teaching I ever did on this passage. Again, I repent. Jesus is walking on the water. 
And he is coming towards them. Why? Come on, leaders. When we're in a storm where there's opposition in our church, congregations that want to think one way and congregations that want to think another way, come on, that's a storm. And in the midst of it, in that storm, here comes Jesus walking on the water. Why? Because when he came towards them, he wanted to teach them what he could not teach them at the miracle service. And that is two things. You can trust me in every situation and know that I care. Come on, we, we don't learn that when we're being healed. And, and again, that's important. Come on, it's not, is it this one or that one? It's both. Two is the number of witness. Come on, we ought to witness the miraculous in the congregation and we ought to give witness that God is making storm riders that the opposition does not affect us because I see him walking towards me and I know I can trust him and I know that he cares. Now, now just stay with me a minute. They were struck with fear. Now, these are the 12 that the kingdom of God is going to be put in their hands when Jesus lives. And not one of the guys were calm. Oh, y'all ain't hearing me. Because, see, they always think it's the women that get emotional. <laughs> these guys are panic-stricken with fear, and they all yell out. It's the only time in the Bible they're in one accord. <laughs> they're all in one accord. Ah! It's a ghost. Why? We will never recognize him if our mentality in leadership stays in the miraculous. And church, I'm here to tell you where our nation is headed in the year the end of 2007 and 2008, we need to know a revelation that's in the storm. Come on, we need not to be afraid. We need to know that he is still the provider. He still heals the sick. He still raises the dead. He still opens blind eyes. But we got to stay in the boat together and know that he's coming towards us because we can trust him and he cares. They thought it was a ghost. The disciples were struggling. Now, I don't know about you, but I believe they were mentally drained. I, I, I don't believe you can be in this kind of storm that is described and not be mentally drained. I, I believe that they were so mentally drained that their brain wasn't even working when they saw Jesus coming towards them. They thought it was a ghost because all they saw was when he touched and changed things, not when he conquered things. Come on, I'm talking to leaders this morning. I'm talking about what June was talking, the paradigm shift she was describing to us. So in the midst of it, they were threatened. Now, can I... Can I release faith to us this morning? See, faith will see the facts but refuse to be ruled or conquered by them. 
So let me release faith to us this morning. Number one, faith fights fear. See, when you look at Noah's life that built the ark, and it said it would be in the days of Noah, so shall it be before the coming of the Son of Man. When you look at the days of Noah, you find that Noah had to fight fear. Because he's building this boat, there is no rain inside, no one has ever built a boat, and he probably was very fearful about what in the world am I doing, and then when the rain came for 40 days, and it was battering and hitting up against this boat, and there was only one window at the top, and the door was sealed shut, and he had heard the pounding of people that wanted to get in, but it was too late, you better believe that Noah had some issues about fear. You better believe that Job had to fight fear. Job is the oldest book in the Bible. But God knew if I put it in the first book, we ain't going to get them anywhere. So stick it in the middle because probably half of them won't even read it. But Job loses his wife in one day, loses his children in the same day, loses his health in the same day, loses his finances in the same day. And Job is able to ride this storm out and say, I don't care what's going on, I will bless the Lord, O my soul. So we think we suffer. But how would you like to lose your spouse, lose all your children? Lose all your finances, lose all your wealth, lose all your cattle, lose all your... Nothing left but God. Because see, leaders need to know how to fight fear. Leaders need to know that faith fights facts. Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 99. And he is singing to her, tonight is the night. Come on, Sarah laughs. I would laugh too. Come on, baby, into my tent. Tonight is the night. You got to be kidding. But God overruled the natural and let Abraham know this. You can try to produce it in the flesh, but my word won't return void. And you and Sarah, somewhere in your life has to connect. And somewhere in your life you have to give birth to what I spoke, not what you thought was convenient. And they gave birth to an Isaac. It's never too late. Come on, I, I want faith to rise up in us as leaders. It's never too late. It doesn't matter what we produced in the flesh. It doesn't matter the shortcuts we took and were convenient. It doesn't matter if we laid with the wrong thing like, a, like a, a person we thought could get us where we need to go. God gives us grace enough to do it the right way. Yes, he does. Yes. Come on, I don't care how old we are. Oh, everybody over 50 should have amen that. Paul was the same way. I don't want John Mark to come on my, my trip with me. I mean, he's a snotty-nosed little guy, immature. I can't be fooling with him on my big mission trip. 
And it was Barnabas that looked at John Mark and said, give me the boy. Can I talk to you as leaders? There are some people that you look at them and they they don't look like they have any potential and they don't look like they'll ever get it together and they don't look like they will ever surrender to God. But we need some Barnabases, some sons of encouragement that will say, give me that boy because I know with the help of God I can make him into what God called him to be. You don't always gather people around that's got it together. (laughs) Barnabas took John Mark home and I love Paul Uh, Barnabas come and by the way bring John Mark with you come on some people want you after it's done but thank God for leaders that will take you when it ain't done just smile and say you should amen that listen faith will fight for the future See, you got to fight for the future. Because a storm will always break up in the most instant to say, this church doesn't have a future. This leader doesn't have a future. That family doesn't have a future. Those children don't have a future. Your health doesn't have a future. Your kids are acting up again. They don't have a future. Come on. You have to fight for the future. Because God promised you this. I know my plans for you. Yes. Amen. Come on, God knows his plans. You, you have to have faith to get up and say, I don't care what lying devil's talking to our church. I don't care what lying devil's talking to my pastor. I don't care what lying devil's talking to me. I don't care what lying devil's talking to my kids. God is greater than that. And I have a future. And I'm standing on the word of God that God will grant me the future that will glorify him. You have to fight. See, what scares me about the church is we have lost our fighting spirit. It is obvious because our nation, first in the natural, then in the spirit, we're wanting to withdraw from our wrath because we don't want to pay the price. We don't want to talk about death. We don't want to look about the shedding of blood. We don't want to hold ground. And we want to withdraw as though when we withdraw, the enemy isn't coming after us. What you don't conquer will defeat you. We're wimps. We want liberty and freedom without fighting. And it frightens me because we will not unify with our president. We have our opinions. And it doesn't matter what our opinions is. If the president of the United States says we're going to war. And all those Democrats that stood. And all those Republicans that stood. And all those independent parties that stood and said we back you. Now they're liars saying we're not going to back you. We have lost our integrity. No one wants to lose their son or daughter. But liberty has a price. And we have become so soft, we think we can keep our nation without a fight. I'm here to tell you, the kingdom of God is seized violently. You have to fight for it. 
Come on, you have to fight for your marriage. You have to fight for your kids. You have to fight for your church. You have to fight for women of the word ministry. You have to fight. You have to fight for lost people. You have to fight for those that are in addiction. You have to fight. If you're not willing to fight, don't be a leader. I'm not going to have many churches to preach it, but I promise you this one thing. I'm going to stand here and line up with God. And I'm telling you, we are not on a playground. The church is not an adult daycare center. Come on, to change diapers and give Kool-Aid. We are standing on a battleground. We are fighting for the integrity of God and the honor of His name. And we're fighting for the liberty of the United States of America. And we are soldiers. And we are raising up an army. Because we're going to fight. Come on, some of us just need the reality. We got married and we learned how to fight. We need to learn how to fight in the spirit. We don't war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers to the tearing down of every stronghold that God might be glorified. We have to fight for the future of our children and fight for the future of our church and fight for the future of our grandchildren and our grandchildren's children. This thing isn't just about me. It's when I leave will they still know who God is. Sometimes you can't be lovers. Come on, you have to be fighters. <laughs> they are struggling at this boat. I'm on clothes. They are struggling at this boat. And suddenly a voice shouts out, Take courage. Be not afraid. It is I. Now they're exhausted. They are frightened. They are shocked that a ghost is talking to them. They are petrified. They are suffering. They are struggling. And Jesus says, take courage. It is I, leaders, be not afraid. What is he doing? I want to assure you, I am still here. I don't care what's going on in your ministry. I don't care what's going on in your church. I don't care what's going on in your personal life. If you will listen, you will hear him say, take courage. Don't be afraid. I'm still here. Now, let me just break it down just one minute more and then we're coming to the end. I want to say to every leader here, when a storm arises... It is not time to turn back, but let him make an opportunity out of it. Because, see, there's some storms rising up in the church right now. People who think their opinion is more important than God's ways. There's a storm rising up against the family. 
Because, see, we think, well, I, I don't believe in homosexuality. I believe that a man and woman ought to be married. But if society endorses that and society accepts that, it will be pushed down your children's throat to where they begin to believe they have multiple choices. See, homosexuality and lesbian, and I, I don't want to take up a long, lengthy time, but homosexuality and lesbian, which is very relevant to where the church is right now, we're dealing with it. It is not the sexual thing that God wants us to see. See, it manifests right. sexually, yes. but it's not the sexual thing. What it is, is the loss of identity of male and female. Yes, it is. And when you lose your identity, listen church, only the church can reinstate true identity. So they forgot when they were born that they were identified as male or female. Because God knows this principle. Listen to me. When you are not properly identified, you cannot connect with what you're supposed to connect with that brings life. So as long as they have a false identity, they connect with the wrong thing that cannot produce life. That is true in every area of our life, not just homosexual. If we're not connected to the right ministry, we cannot produce life. If we're not connected to the right call, we cannot produce life. So in the midst of it, Jesus wants us to understand how to make opportunities out of storms. Let me just close with this. Peter's heart and hope is stirred. Because you remember Peter had had the revelation of who Christ was and had been called by Christ. And he understood this incredible Messiah. So his hope is stirred because he understood this no matter how shallow it was. Because he cried out, it's a ghost with everyone else. But when he heard that, take courage in his eye, be not afraid. Something about that voice. Cut through all of that. And stirred him with hope that if I can just get to the presence of God, I know I can be saved. I love this Peter. <laughs> Peter speaks up, Lord, if it be you, bid me come to you. And Jesus told him, come on, big boy. Now, when Jesus said, come, that isn't only permission, but in the original text, it is a command. Don't stay where you are. Come where I am. Now, I'm going to blow your theology. As long as Peter's eyes were on Jesus, he did not sink. But the minute that he felt the storm around his feet, he began to waver in his faith and he began to sink in that water. But listen to me. He sunk because he was in disobedience. Oh, I'm going to blow your bubble. Even though Jesus told him, come to me, he wanted Peter to understand. Why is it that you always want to get out of where I put you? Oh, y'all ain't hearing me this morning. 
Why is it you always want to change to another church? Why is it you ever always want another marriage? Why is it you ever want another marriage? Why is it that when I put you in the boat, the minute that it gets hard, you want to step out of the boat? Come on, come on. But I'm going to show you that your safety was where I put you, not where you thought you were big enough to walk. Come on, because if Peter had had faith, he'd have walked on the water. But Jesus couldn't let him walk on the water because he wasn't supposed to be on the water. He was supposed to be in the boat. Come on, some people get sinking when they leave what's hard. <laughs> I'm going to wind this thing down. Turn around to someone and say, I don't know where she's coming from. Listen, waves were at his feet. His walk was stormy. He began to sink. He had totally messed up and didn't know he messed up. He's where God didn't put him. We want to call it faith. But it was foolishness to get out of the will of God. And Jesus had put him in that rocky boat. 